in John chapter 6 today. So if you've got your Bible, we invite you to turn there to John chapter 6. Uh, yeah. Um, by the way, uh, if you if you have children uh, age four through uh, through the third grade, uh, they are headed off to children's church. And if one of your children would like to uh, participate in that, that's where all those all those rascals are headed. So um, anyway, um, well, as you turn to John chapter six, let me ask you a question: What kind of Jesus? What kind of Jesus do you want to follow? What kind of Jesus do you want to follow? Let me clarify what I mean. What do you want Jesus to do for you? When you think about following Jesus, uh, in your mind, what is the intended result of that? Uh, today, as we look at this text, we're going to see some people who have an entirely different concept of what kind of king they want Jesus to be than what Jesus himself says that he is. And in other words, they have missed the point of what he is doing among them and why. Uh, but the Apostle John has written down these events so that we don't also miss the point and so that we rightly understand who Jesus is and follow him in the right way. So I want to pray for our time in the word and then uh, want to read to you verses 1 to 14 of this text. Uh, Father, we do thank you that Jesus has come and that we have opportunity to understand who he is and why he came and what he is here to do uh, for us because of your great love for us. And Father, we pray that you would open our ears and hearts and eyes and mind to see and understand and to do uh, that which the Scripture calls us to see and understand and do. And Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would shine the light uh, into, the, into our hearts from the Word and help us to walk in it. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verses 1 through 14. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then and seeing... A large crowd was coming toward him. Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. 
and so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when it had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, let me, before we get into this, let me back up and give you a little context on what's happening. Jesus has just left Jerusalem. Uh, where he had been doing some miracles because the Jewish leaders there want him dead for claiming that he is the Son of God. Now, that's a problematic claim unless you can back it up. Amen? But they want him dead. And they have rejected his claims of being who he is, the Son of God and Savior of the world. And so Jesus has gone back home to Galilee. At this time, he has relocated from Nazareth to the city of Capernaum, uh, which is there on the the Sea of Galilee. And he is going to go minister across the Sea of Galilee over on the other side to go do ministry in the area that is today called the Golan Heights. Uh, if you're familiar with that, it's kind of a contested area uh, between uh, Israel and Syria. And according to Luke chapter 9, Jesus gave his disciples power to do some incredible miracles. And they get back and they're, they're telling Jesus about all the exciting stuff that they've done and seen and all the things that have happened as they're doing ministry over there. And Jesus says, that's great. Let's get some time out in the wilderness alone. And Luke leaves a lot of that detail out. But when they, when they get back, they're planning all this time just with them and Jesus. And that's not what happens. Because a crowd follows them and follows Jesus. They find out where he is and they're like, let's go find this guy. Because they heard about all of the healings that Jesus has been doing. And he, they've seen what the disciples did. And Jesus, out of compassion, heals a large number of sick people. And before long, a huge crowd is gathered. And it's late in the day. And Jesus asks Philip, how are we going to get bread to feed all these people? And just imagine this scene, okay? This is a minor league baseball stadium's worth of people. So just imagine a crowd the size of everybody at Dozer Park gathered around. Okay? It's a, it, it, you know, it's, it's a, you know, free hot dog night. Everybody's there, okay? And Jesus points to a crowd that size and he says... So, Philip, what do you think? How are we going to get bread to feed all these people? And Philip's like, he does some quick math. And he's like, you know, um, I mean, this is a wilderness area on top of that. There's no town nearby. Not even any, any people apart from this, this crowd that's gathered to see Jesus. And he says, you know, 200 denarii wouldn't give everybody even a little bit. I don't know, Jesus. A denarius is, a, uh, is actually a Greek coin. 
And it's the equivalent of about a day's wages. About a day's wages. So let's say you, you work at a job and you have, you have, uh, you make 10 bucks an hour, right? So 80 bucks a day. So at the end of a week, you've got, you know, you've got, uh, what is that? $400, right? $400 times 200 It's a whole bunch of money, right? And by the way, how many people are going to serve all these people? There's just Jesus and the twelve, right? How many people they got working down at Dozer Park? Is it more than a dozen or less? <laughs> right? A bunch, right? And he's going, Jesus, we not only don't have that much money, but how are we even going to do this? This is, this is crazy. There's no way to get food to this many people. And the text says, I, th- I love this, John's little parenthetical comment. This is impossible, Jesus. John gives this little parenthetical comment here in verse 6. Jesus is not asking Philip because Jesus is confused about what the math requires or what kind of resources that they need or the fact that this is an impossible situation. His question, Jesus' question is not for his own benefit, for, but for Philip's benefit. So that Philip might understand the magnitude of Jesus' power and understand what it reveals about Jesus' identity. By the way, does Jesus, does Jesus still do that to people? Does he still put people in impossible situations so that they can see who he is when he delivers? Yeah. If you haven't ever been in an impossible situation where the only option is to pray and seek the Lord, can I just assure you it's because you're not old enough yet? <laughs> okay? Someday your day's coming. Okay? And God will deliberately put you in impossible situations where the only option is to hit your knees and say, God, Help me. I can't do this. The, the amount of resources that I have and the amount of resources I need is a wide gap. And I can't do it. And if anything is going to happen, it's going to have to happen through you. And, and when God delivers in that situation, you will see Him for who He is. And see that He is the God who does what is impossible. He absolutely does the impossible. And at just that moment, as Philip and Jesus are talking, Andrew comes up and and he tells them, look, hey, I have located one little boy's lunch. I've located one little boy's lunch. I got two fish. And I got five barley loaves, okay? Now, when you're thinking loaves of bread, you know, don't think like these nicely sliced, you know, long loaves of bread. Don't think like, you know, French bread that's like eight feet long, you know, none of that, okay? This isn't like we've been to Subway, we've got a six-foot sub, we're going to, you know, kind of try to cut it and make it stretch for all these people. No, no. You know, think these barley loaves, these are things that poor people ate, 
And they're about the size of your fist, maybe. Five little, like a little hard roll. Okay? And when it says fish, you know, don't be thinking like, you know, bluefin tuna. Okay, first of all, they don't live in the Sea of Galilee. What lives in the Sea of Galilee, there's about 18 species of, of commercially important fish, okay? Um, the, the ones that were really important in Jesus' day were these sardines. And in fact, the city of Magdala, where Mary Magdalene is from, was it, its name literally means a place for processing fish. And it was the center... Uh, in the ancient world of these sardine pickling operations. And and because the sardines all school up in in mass on the Sea of Galilee at certain times of the year, and the fishermen go out and they catch sardines, okay? Now, what do you know about sardines? They're about that big, right? And, And this is what poor people in Jesus' day ate. Hey, we get these little pickled sardines, okay? It may be that it may be that that the kid is a little little further up the the, the food chain, so to speak, and so he's got Galilean tilapia, right? Y'all ever bought tilapia? Okay, how big are those fillets? They're like that big, right? Okay, I mean this is like an this is a creature that's about the size of a big bluegill, you know. So maybe he's got two tilapia. But most likely, he's got a couple sardines and five little hard rolls. And he's like, and <laughs> Andrew's like, hey, look what I got. I got lunch, <laughs> right? Now, this is like the beginning of a bad joke, right? How, how are we going to feed all these people? Don't worry. I got two sardines and I got five hard rolls. We'll just make it stretch, right? And this is feeding 5,000 people? you got to be kidding me. There ain't no way. And Jesus does something completely amazing. He says, look, just have everybody sit down, and I'm going to distribute the food. Think about that. I'm going to start breaking up the sardines and start passing out the rolls, and we'll feed everybody. Okay. <laughs> and the disciples do it. They, they say, okay, everybody sit down, groups. And we'll bring you some lunch. And Jesus prays, and he just starts distributing. And distributing. And distributing. And distributing. And distributing. And the text says something really amazing. It says, everybody ate as much as they wanted. And then each of the disciples took with them a basket and picked up the leftovers. The what? The leftovers. Jesus, somehow, by His power, is able to take the tiny amount of resources that they have and multiply it in such a way that it feeds 5,000 people and every disciple gets his own basket full of leftovers. Think about that. I don't, I can't, I'm trying to picture how this looks. You know what I mean? Like Jesus takes one of these sardines, starts breaking off chunks, right? And no matter how many chunks he breaks off, there's never any less fish. 
And then he starts breaking off rolls. And all of a sudden, there's just a whole lot more rolls than what we started with. And we don't know how this happens, but it's just, it's just the multiplication is happening in his hands. And they're handing it out. And the crowd sees what happens. And they say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And what they mean is, you know, Moses had prophesied in the book of Deuteronomy that in the, in the days after him would come a prophet who was like him in power and in relationship with God. Is Jesus a prophet like Moses? Yes, he is. He is the fulfillment of Mo- Moses' prophecy. But he is much more than that, isn't he? In fact, he's superior to Moses in only way, in, in every way. He is superior to Moses in every way. Remember, Moses provided food for the people in the wilderness too. How did he do it? God told him, tomorrow there'll be bread from heaven. And Moses went out and told the people, tomorrow there'll be bread from heaven. And in the morning, the people who didn't believe that God would provide went out and looked and they saw the bread from heaven on the ground and they said, what is it? Which is how it got its name. Manna means, what is it? (laughs) Okay. But Moses provided, through God's power, bread from heaven, but not by his own power. Did God provide, through Jesus, bread? Yes. He also provided fish, by the way, as much as people wanted to eat. His power is superior to Moses because Moses could only announce what God would do. Jesus has God's power and does what only God can do. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them, and the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now this is also truly amazing. The disciples are rowing back across the Sea of Galilee. A bunch of these guys were fishermen. And presumably they're going back home to Jesus' home base in Capernaum on the west side of the lake. And it says the strong wind came up and the waves start getting rough. Now I have not been there yet. One day uh, I will go to this place and see this. I want to do that before I die. Um. But the wind comes down out of the hills, and these hills funnel and amplify the power of the wind. And the sea starts getting rough. The waves start getting high. And they're in a rowboat going across the water. And it is an adventurous trip all of a sudden. And they're out in the middle of the sea. In fact, three or four miles is halfway across. The Sea of Galilee is eight miles wide. 
and they're halfway across. When they see Jesus walking across the water to them. Now, it says they were frightened. I think it's because they don't expect Jesus to do this, and they don't recognize it's Jesus, right? Now, some of you, some of you may have had this experience. I've had this experience multiple times in my house, right? Um, you know, like you don't realize someone is home, and then they come. You know, you come around a corner, and and they see you. And they're like, oh, right? <laughs> because it's all out of context and they don't expect you to be there, right? Okay. Um, they're like, whoa, hold on, wait. Wait, I didn't know you were here. Okay. And, it's, and so it's not so much that they're afraid of you as that they don't expect to see what they're seeing, right? And the disciples don't even recognize this Jesus because, I mean, there's a, there's a storm that's brewing on the lake, and they see, all they see is this figure walking across the water, and they think, according to the other gospel writers, it's a ghost, which makes sense in light of their experience, right? How many of you all have seen somebody walk across the water? Not me, right? And so they're like, well, it must be a ghost. And all of a sudden, Jesus speaks to them and identifies himself as who he is. He gets in the boat. He gets in the boat. And immediately, it says, immediately they're on the other side of the lake. Now, how about that? This is kind of casually mentioned. Somehow they crossed four or five miles of water in a rowboat in an instant. It's just, they're just there. How do we get to the other side of the lake? I don't know. Jesus got in with us, and all of a sudden we were to the other side. Now, here's the point that John is making with these two miracles. If you look back at the end of chapter 5, you'll see that Jesus there tells the disciples, I mean, tells the Jewish leaders about Moses. And he says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. Now, remember, what are the two big miracles that Moses is associated with? Manna in the wilderness and crossing the sea, right? And so Jesus shows his disciples who's better than Moses. <laughs> okay, I can produce bread in the wilderness out of a little boy's lunch. I can produce fish out of a couple sardines. I can feed thousands of people. And by the way, is the fact that there were 5,000 people significant? Yeah. It means there was like more than a few people. Could Jesus have produced food for millions of people? Yeah. The number wasn't relevant because Jesus' power is unlimited. However many people there had been, Jesus could have fed them all. And the point that, that John is trying to help them to understand of what Jesus did here is that Jesus is better than Moses. He can produce food in the wilderness and meet people's need. He can miraculously cross the sea whenever he wants to. 
You know, Moses had to have God divide the water for him. Jesus just walks on top of it. And Jesus is able to carry his followers. They don't even have to walk. They're just instantly there on the other side of the water. They're meant to point out Jesus' identity as the Son of God, the Son of Man, whom Daniel prophesied the Messiah that all the Jews were anticipating. And so he includes these true accounts from Jesus' life, not simply because they really happen and are amazing, but to show us who Jesus is and demonstrate that your faith in Him is not in vain. Your faith in Him is not in vain. Now, if you're paying attention, you'll notice that I skipped a verse. Verse 15. I didn't read it. Some of you are going, what? All right, I see those faces. Okay. Uh, Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, I don't know about you, but this verse always strikes me as odd. Always strikes me as odd. The people see Jesus' miracle of feeding the 5,000, and they want to make him king. So much so that they're ready to take him and make him king by force. You know, it's kind of like, ready or not, Jesus, we're, uh, let's make you the messianic king. And so what strikes me, though, as odd is not the people's reaction, because that seems normal to me. I mean, after all, who does not want a leader of their country who can make sure there's nobody ever goes hungry? Who wouldn't want a Messiah that could provide for everybody's material needs out of whatever resources we have? I can multiply it and make sure that no one goes hungry in our entire country. I mean, isn't that what we have elections for? Like every four years, you know, we elect this this person, this man or this woman, and we invest all of our hopes and dreams in him or her, and we think, well, this person is finally going to do for us everything that we imagine, right? Right? And then they get in office and we find out they're a sinful human like us. And we're all radically disappointed. And so until the next time when we do it again, right? Politics is stupid. It is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and But that's what we think we're getting. And here, they have that guy. They have the real McCoy, the real Messiah, the one who really can, out of his power, just provide whatever anybody would need. And so they're ready to sign him up for Messianic King right now. And by the way, isn't that who Jesus is? Yes. And by the way, isn't that what he's hoping that everybody will recognize him as? Yes. So what does Jesus do? He leaves them and walks off on the mountain by himself. That makes total sense, right? No. (laughs) That's confusing. Why would Jesus do that? Jesus, you finally have the moment where everybody wants you to be king. Why not be king? Because Jesus understands Something the people do not understand. That he's not that kind of king. At least not yet. 
In his first advent, he was born to live and then to die for sin, forsaken by God and afflicted so that we could be his children. Amen? And it is at his second advent when he returns that his kingdom will be established and Israel will be restored and the Son of God will reign from Jerusalem on David's throne. And what Jesus understood that the people did not understand is that the cross always precedes the crown. Amen? The cross always precedes the crown. And Jesus is not about to let this crowd get them out of order. And by the way, He is not going to let you and I get them out of order either. There is always suffering and death before there is honor and reward. Always. In Jesus' life, in my life, in your life. It's going to happen exactly that way. Because a servant is like his master, a student, his teacher. And what happens to Jesus happens to you and happens to me. Even today, people want to follow Jesus for a variety of reasons, don't they? They want to follow Jesus and they're hoping for healing and blessing. I want my finances to be good. I want to get rid of this illness that I have. So I'm going to follow Jesus. There are even false teachers out there that you can watch on TV that will promise you that very thing. You just follow Jesus, and by the way, write my ministry a big check. Then you will get everything you want. Some people follow Jesus because that's what nice people do with their Sunday morning. You know, like, you know, I don't go to bars and, uh, you know, I don't have any hobbies, so I think I'll just go to church on Sunday morning. That's kind of what nice people do. And then, you know, they go to church and then they eat out and then they uh, forget about everything that they saw and experienced at church until the next time that they go. Because that's kind of, that's what they're following Jesus looks like. They just want to be a nice person. Some people follow because they want their marriage to get better. Or because they want their kids to turn out to be nice people. Instead of the little jerks they've raised them to be, right? (laughs) Right? They follow Jesus in order to get something instead of because of who He is. Some people follow Jesus because it's a family tradition. You know, family traditions aren't bad. You know, my wife's family, they're German, so they eat noodles at Thanksgiving when we get together with them. I eat noodles, and we, we all enjoy it, right? Or you got to have pie, or you got to have whatever, right? Family traditions are not a bad thing. But some people follow Jesus simply out of family tradition. There are lots of other reasons people follow Jesus. But there's one reason that Jesus himself accepts. And it is because you are sick of your sins and you know that he is the only Savior and your only hope of redemption. Only then will Jesus be your king. Will he sometimes deliver, by the way, on some other things? Yeah. Yeah, he will. 
But that's not the reason to come. It's not the reason to come. Jesus will deliver on those things only when you come to him first as a primary motivation. And then sometimes he will fix all the other stuff that's wrong with your life out of an outgrowth and out of an overflow of your relationship with him. But he doesn't always fix everything you want. Not always. Because the cross always precedes the crown and you have to learn to trust him in the dark. Let me just underline a few things here by way of application as we close out our time. Number one, Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not even just the prophet that Moses predicted. And that's a truth that we all need to embrace and a truth we all need to hold tightly to for ourselves. The world is full of alleged teachers and prophets. The world is full of those. You can look all around the world and find people that are revered as prophets and teachers. But Jesus is the prophet and the teacher par excellence. He is in a class entirely by himself because he is not just a prophet and teacher. He is the son of God come into the world. And he came to die for your sins and for mine and to be raised from the dead to give us new life. And you need to understand, men and women and boys and girls, that he is not simply another teacher. Jesus, in fact, doesn't leave that option even open to us to conclude that he's just another teacher. He is Lord and God and King and all God's children should worship Him. Second, second thing here, just a question. Why do you follow Jesus? Why? What's the reason you've chosen Christ as your King? What do you want most out of your relationship with Him? Do you want the giver or do you want the gift? Do you want a relationship with Jesus for the sake of knowing Jesus or because you are hoping for something else as a benefit? Are you here for the bread and fish? Or are you here for the one who gives them out? If you're here for the benefits, can I encourage you to repent of your selfishness and to turn to Him for Him? Because He is worth it. Jesus is worthy of your worship and your devotion and your life, even if the only benefit that there is is relationship with Him. You know, I watched the Anderson family lay Harold to rest this week. Watched them grieve. Watched them celebrate. And it gave me another opportunity to think about 
what it is about heaven that is so attractive. And you know what it is? It isn't the fact that one day we'll be reunited with all the people that we know who died in faith in Jesus just like we will. That's a big part of it. That's not the main event. You know what the main event is? It's Jesus. It's the fact that I am going home to the Lord and I will behold Him face to face. Jesus is the main attraction. He's the main attraction of heaven. And He is worthy of your life even if He is the only thing in it that is a benefit. Amen? Now let me just say one last thing. I'll make you a promise. God will, He will, put you at some point in your life in an impossible situation so that you can learn to trust in the God who does the impossible. Maybe some of you are in that situation right now. In fact, I know some of you are. I know some of you are in that situation right this minute. You look at your bank account and the the things that need to get paid out of it and you go, ain't no way. Or you look at your health and the likely outcome of where that is going, and you go, ain't no way. Or you look at your marriage, and you see the brokenness that is present there, and you say to yourself, there is no way for me to fix this on my own. Or you look at a relationship with a family member, or maybe even one of your children, and you say to yourself, my God, there is no way I can fix this. And do you know why you are right there? So that you will learn to trust God in the dark. So that you will learn to trust God who does what is impossible. So that you will learn to seek Him for the solution. And to rely on Him. And to know that He is the God who does what no one can do. Will that make everything better in every circumstance? No. I wish I could tell you that. I can't. But I can tell you that trusting God when there is no other thing to do is not only the right thing, but it's the best thing. Because you learn that God is sufficient for your needs regardless of how things turn out. His strength is sufficient in our weakness. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that Jesus is not just another Moses. But He is far, far better than that. He is the King, the Son of God, the Son of Man whom Daniel prophesied would come 
the one who loves us supremely and laid down his life for our sins, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, that we too might be made alive by the Spirit, redeemed from sin and raised to new life. Father, I pray that we would all learn to trust you in impossible situations and to see you deliver and realize that you are the only God worthy of the name, the only God worthy of our worship. And Father, we pray in thankfulness and gratitude for who you are and what you have done for us through your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.